Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Central London service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Morning, everyone. Hope you're doing well, and you enjoyed the amazing weather yesterday. Got some cool weather friends out there. Uh, Some time ago now, like at the end of last year, I had um, a number of people who came to me and asked me this question. They said, we really like the church's stance on how everyone can be involved in doing everything in terms of ministry, but we were raised in churches which taught that there were certain things that women were not allowed to do, primarily uh, some of the senior leadership roles and maybe some of the preaching roles as well. They said, listen, we love being part of Christchurch, we're really happy with this, but could you please give us the biblical rationale for why you do what you do. So we said, cool, sure. So we did a number, at the beginning of this year, we did a number of events um, around the church, around the different services, which we call beneath the surface, surf, surface, where I got to talk a bit about this and we did some Q&A and so on. And as part of that, in pretty much every one of those events, the request was, thank you very much, but please can you teach about it on a Sunday? So back by popular demand <laughs> this morning, that is what I'm planning to do. So uh, sort of heads up for those of you that are not regulars here or maybe first time, this is going to be a little different from normal. Typically on a Sunday when we get to preach, we look at some of the practical application of, of how to live the Christian life. And today we are going to go deeper and we're looking at one of the presuppositional questions that underpin our community life together. But I trust that it will be helpful for all of us uh, nonetheless. To summarize our stance, Christchurch London's stance on this, there are three criteria which the Bible gives on which we sh- are, which are tests for all of us in terms of our involvement in ministry or service in the church. Test number one, character. Whenever any of us get to serve in the church, we should be, the way the Bible understands it, is I am being Jesus to somebody else. That I should be communicating with Christ-like qualities. And uh, in two or three of the later books in the New Testament, there are long and frankly intimidating lists on some of the qualities for senior leaders. Essentially, it sort of goes like this. The more responsibility you carry, the more demands there are on your character. But character is a gender-free criteria. We're all demanded, however we serve, to serve with godly character. Secondly, with gifting. It does help if you're going to lead worship if you can sing. Or if you can play the instruments. Now, I, got, I missed the, the band here this morning. But I've been in the South Service. They send you their love. They were looking great this morning. Uh, but there, were just, there was Sarah O uh, led with a guitar and then... Uh, Hannah was playing keys, just the two of them. It was absolutely magnificent. It was this fantastic combination of great skill and big heart and love for Jesus. So it was just like the best way for me to start my day. But if I'd been playing the piano, you would not have felt the same way. (laughs) In other words, gifting really matters. If you're going to organize in the church, then be organized yourself. Not because you have to, but just because that's what you do. If you're going to be a pastor, you'll be a people person. You'll not be pastoring people thinking, when can I run away, lock my door, and hide in my bedroom? 
So gifting matters. And there are, again, across the New Testament, a number of different lists of these spiritual gifts that God gives us to enable him, enable us, rather, to serve him, whether in the church or in the wider world as well. So character, gifting, and calling, or passion. If you are passionate about something, you will find it a whole load easier to do it, and you will be better at it than if you weren't. One of the greatest joys and privileges of my life is getting to lead this church. I'm very passionate about it. You couldn't persuade me not to do it. People have tried. <laughs> now, I do, it, I do it better. I'm not saying I, you can judge whether I do it well, but I do it better than I would if I was like, uh, got to go to work today. What do you, I lead a church. So passion or sense of calling matters. And again, through the scriptures, we find lots of examples where the Holy Spirit comes on people and equips them to be able to serve. And at the end of this morning's sermon, we will have an opportunity to do that. We will pray for the Holy Spirit to come and to equip us to be able to serve one another as we serve him. Now, our conviction is it is those three things, character, gifting, and calling, which determine where we're to serve, not gender. Now, some of you, in now knowing what I'm preaching on this morning, some of you will be like, oh, great. I'm really interested in this, and this is going to really help me. And it's nice to see. Some of you have actually, you know, pens or phones have come out, and I'm trusting you're taking notes, not Googling what to do at lunchtime. <laughs> so some of you will be like, this is fantastic. Others of you will be like, I cannot believe the church is talking about this. This is so yesteryear. Do we really need to have this conversation? Well, here's why I think we do need to have this conversation. Uh, firstly, because there are still significant parts of the church that would argue that the, certainly the senior leadership role in any church is male. The Catholic church, the biggest part of the church, some of the more conservative evangelical churches, for example. Now, I don't mention them to have a pop at them in many ways, they are better or more godly or have things that we can learn from. We respect and we love the whole body of Christ. I'm just trying to be real and say, there's a whole load of the church that doesn't see things this way. And for some of us, at least, we would have been raised in those parts of the church. And I think it's important that we live with conviction rather than a general sense of, I think it's fine if I do this. Because... Just, I think it's fine, without conviction means we'll never serve in the ways that we could otherwise do. I should also say that I love the way this question first came to me. We love what you do, but show us it in the Bible. Because actually, that sh we are people of the book. We love the Bible, and we want to go to it. And actually, we should learn with whatever we're thinking about. And there's so much to think about in life. What should we do here? What should we do there? that actually we should be saying, well, let's go back to the Bible. And it's that which then undergirds our convictions and our confidence as a result. And fourthly, to say that we have a big job to do, Christchurch London. We have a big job to do. We're to contribute to the cultural, social, and spiritual renewal of this city. That means lots of people coming to faith. That means lots of opportunities to care for those in need. That means doing loads of good things which will help add quality and value to life in this city. 
And all of that as we start service after service after service. Now, why on earth would we try and do that with only half the workforce? Florence Nightingale said this. She said, I would have given the church my head, my hand, and my heart, but the church would not have them. She did not know what to do with them. Now, my prayer is that no one will be able to say that of Christchurch, London. There's too much that God is asking us to do. Let me just, what we're going to do then in the rest of this sermon, unusually, is we're going to do an overview of the New Testament and then we're going to find what I think is the trickiest passage of the lot and we're going to ask, what on earth do we do with that? Okay, so that's what we're going to do. Let me just make a couple of other comments before we do it. First is that my personal challenge this morning is to get the right level of depth to this sermon. Some of you are going to want more. Some of you are going to plead that I would stop within about 10 minutes of now. So there have been whole libraries written on this subject in recent times. And I realize that I won't get this quite right for everyone. But for those of you who want less, would you just bear with me this morning? I do believe it will help some of our brothers and sisters. And for those of you that want more, let me know, and let me know just how much you want, and we can give it to you. And I'm happy to talk, and we can send you stuff to read and so on as well. Also to say that I realize that there will be some here who have a more conservative view. That some of you might be like, David, I don't know that I agree with this. And people have said to me, I don't agree, and do you mind if I'm still part of this church? And I'm like, of course. You're welcome. People have disagreed with me since the start of Christchurch London. And it's not just me, it's us. It's, this is a church view. But nonetheless, you are welcome because we are building a community of love and respect for one another. So I've been asked to share, here's the church's perspective. I hope it's helpful to you. But I'm not asking you if you disagree. If you disagree, you disagree. But we love having you as part of the church. Third thing to say is that one of the components of our 2020 vision is to have women and men at leadership at every level of church life. So a practical test of all of this is how are we doing? Answer, okay, not brilliantly. Okay, in that now every one of our services has a leadership team or an emerging leadership team, and we have men and women uh, on each of those teams. Our senior team that's, that's led the whole church up until now, has been male only, but I'm looking forward shortly to sharing more with you about a reshaping of things, which will include women at every level of leadership in the church. So that's a little bit of uh, excitement to come. Let's do now, or let's ask now, how, do we, how are we going to handle this subject? Because my observation is this. Firstly, there are not many verses in the New Testament that actually address head-on this question, what can, uh, are there different gender roles? Are there some things for women and some things for men? There's, there's very few verses which you can draw anything from, and they are, without exception, difficult verses to understand. They're challenging verses. So what do we do with them? Because my experience is that the way that people go to that verse, or those verses, is the way they come out of them. If I bring a certain set of presuppositions these verses are hard enough to understand that I can find those presuppositions within and come out the other side. 
What I'm trying to say is it's, I don't think it's a very fruitful way of doing this to take all the difficult verses and try and work them out. You just end up where you started. So, and let me just give you one example of that. In Ephesians 5, it talks about the husband being head of the wife. What does that mean? Does that mean, does that, mean that there is a hierarchy in marriage? and that the guy is ultimately in charge? Or does it mean that their marriage is a more dynamic affair of give and take and mutual respect and mutual submission? Well, those that want to argue the first, the hierarchical view, will take, take you to a whole load of other ancient sources where the same word, head, which is used in Ephesians 5, is used in these ancient sources. And they'll say, look, Paul must have meant hierarchy because of all these other sources. You hear them and you say, oh, wow, maybe he did. Then the other guys, the more dynamic mutual submission types, they go, oh, yeah, but there's this whole set of ancient sources as well. And in these, head is like the head of a river, the source of things, like Adam came before Eve, but has nothing to do with authority. And you go, oh, well, now I'm confused. Which is it? That's my point. Because you can take it one after the other, and you sort of, you think, oh, well, that's a good argument. Oh, yeah, but that's a good argument too, so what do you do? One of our convictions about Scripture is that it's harmonious, that God speaks with one voice and has one message, not three or four different ones. Therefore, one of the principles for interpreting Scripture is for the plain things in Scripture, the obvious things, of which there is a lot, to interpret the unplain or the unclear. Not the other way around. Obviously, if we go to the unclear first, stay there, and then go, you know, anything can happen. They start with the clear. Start with the obvious and then allow that to shine light on what is not so clear. So let's, let's do a quick survey of the New Testament and ask what are the main themes of the New Testament that will help us when we get to the difficult passages. Let's start in the Gospels. The Gospels start with the birth of Jesus. It's so obvious that it's easy to miss it, but Jesus was carried and born by a woman. Right at the start of the Gospels is this great affirmation of the important role that women play in God's plan. Jesus, of course, grows up and he travels. He travels, we're told, with women, sometimes Luke says, with wealthy women who support him financially. Wherever he goes, he brings liberty to women, for we find that the theme that runs through the New Testament, the two themes are equality and liberty. Equality and liberty. And wherever Jesus seems to go, there is that sense of liberty for women in a context that was very top-heavy, men-dominated, sometimes in some very, very distasteful ways. Jesus would bring liberty wherever he went. He would travel with women. He would talk with women. He would even, and I have to say, in the most appropriate way, allow women to touch him and him touch women. One of my favorite scholars on this is Ken Bailey, who was, has lived almost his whole life in the, uh, in the Middle East and therefore comes up with perspectives and contextual uh, angles that we miss in the West. I love the story of Mary and Martha. Martha cooking, getting the food ready, Mary coming and sitting with Jesus. Ken Bailey says, listen, listen in, an ancient, in an ancient Near Eastern house, you had the women lived at the back. You had the guys in the front room. That was male-only area. 
And he said, when Jesus has Mary sitting there at his feet, there is this quiet, unspoken revolution going on. Because she is welcome in what has been culturally a male domain. Most importantly, in the Gospels, is the fact that when Jesus appears as resurrected Christ, who does he first appear to? He does, to a woman. Now, women are not allowed to be witnesses in a court of law at the time. If a murder has happened and a woman saw what happened, it's inadmissible. It's irrelevant. Jesus appears in his resurrected self and he says, go and tell the disciples. She's not like, oh, but I couldn't. I mean, that's too theological. She, <laughs> she goes. She's just seen Jesus risen from the dead. And so there's this huge affirmation of what the legal system will not allow, God says, is right. So we find this in the Gospels. Then we go to the epistles. Well, where do we go? Let me, let me suggest we go to Romans chapter 16. It will come up behind me. I'm not going to read it because of time. But you can, you can follow it there. I'll read it afterwards. This is Paul's number 15 chapters of theology. And then he gets personal. He goes relationships. He starts with Phoebe. Phoebe, it would seem, has carried this epistle to the Roman church. Now, typically, if you, if you carry the letter, you not only read the letter to the church, but you then explain the letter. Now, we don't know that Phoebe did that, but it is likely that she would have done. So she comes, and, and Paul acknowledges her. Then we find Priscilla and Aquila, a couple. Priscilla, the female, and they, not only he says that they've risked their lives for me, and that all the churches are grateful. But we know too from Acts that it was that couple, a woman and a man, who taught Apollos, who was a not insignificant figure in the story of Acts. Then we have Adronicus and Junia, who are outstanding amongst the apostles. What are apostles? In this context, they're the, they're the senior leadership gang in the church at the time. If you were the leaders, you were apostles. Now, modern scholarship says there is no question at all that Junia is a woman. Not just male apostles, but here a female apostle as well. And then you'll see here Mary, and if you read the whole chapter, others, who Paul thanks over and over again, you worked hard for me, you worked hard with me. And so as you read this chapter, you've got no sense, oh, there's some roles reserved for some and some roles reserved for another. It's just like, no, we're united in ministry together, serving God, building his church, serving the Near Eastern world, which is where they were at the time. And so we see Paul standing on Jesus' shoulders. And you can again get that sense of liberty and equality as a result. That's the general tenor of the scriptures. And it is that lens that we then take to the difficult passages. In order that we make sense of them and we hear the harmony of what God wants to say. So now I want to go to what I think is the hardest passage. Or at least the passage that I think trips a lot of us up. It trips us up, even if we're like, no, I, I know what I think. It's like, yeah, but I don't know what that means. Um, is that okay? So let's read it together. 1 Timothy 2.9, I want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. 
For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with propriety. Now what on earth do we do with that? Few things to say. Firstly, these verses are hard to understand. And countless amounts have been written on them. In fact, there's been long, long essays written on one Greek word within this. What I want to share with you is our conviction, my conviction and our conviction in terms of the best way of interpreting things and making sense of this. But I want to do so humbly. I mean, I hope we always come humbly before God's word. But on this particularly, I, I trust you'll hear my heart. What I'm saying is, this is what has helped me. And uh, I hope it will help you as well. To understand any scripture, we have to understand the general context. No communication actually makes sense unless you know the broader context within which it stands. In the Roman Republic, married men had it all their own way. If a woman married a man, she gave him all her property. If she received income once they were married, that all went to the man as well. The man, it was entirely socially acceptable for the man to have mistresses. The woman was expected to stay chaste. Not only did she have to live with this rather or very unequal situation, but she had no way of divorcing for he had all the money, all the property, and so she was putting herself into abject poverty if she left him. About 50 BC, 50 years before Christ, the law was changed so that women could own property, hold their own property even when they got married. One of the unexpected or unintended consequences of this was the emergence of a new type of woman. Wealthy women, because they were the ones who could afford to, started to divorce their husbands and started to express a new sexual freedom, often by taking younger male lovers and celebrating the fact and, and, and insisting that children were not to be an encumbrance to their newfound sexual freedom. And they would do all the things that have been done right down history to free themselves from, those sort of from the encumbrance, as they saw it, of children. Two other things about this new group of women. First is they dressed in a similar way, just like social groups do today. You can get on the tube and you can know quite a bit about certain people because of simply the way they're dressed. These women did their hair in elaborate ways. They wore very expensive clothing. Some of these sources of the time say that their clothing was up to 20 times the value of a laborer's annual wage. And they adorned themselves with pearls and with gold. Interesting, isn't it, that you never hear anyone preaching now about this person saying women don't wear gold or pearls. We have this sense, no, no, that doesn't make sense. That was how they dressed. The other thing about them was that they were known for their brash disagreement in public with the philosophers. And there were stories of them storming the podium, shouting the philosophers down and taking over and saying, no, you listen to me. That's the broad context of this passage. Now, if there's a broad context of the Roman world of the time, there's also a local context, because Timothy is the young pastor in Ephesus. In Ephesus, we have one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. A fertility god. The temple was staffed by female courtesans and male eunuchs. 
If you went to worship Artemis, you went and literally gave Artemis your seed. You had sex with one of the temple prostitutes. So you have both a broad context and you have a local context, which shaped the whole of Ephesus. If you were an Ephesian, you knew your job was to protect the name of Artemis. Now, it would seem that it was in this context that strands of the philosophy of this new social move of wealthy women, divorcing, taking younger lovers and so on, and of the temple of Artemis, that these two between them, that the, some of these philosophies were starting to affect the church here in Ephesus. It's certainly clear, if we say, well, if that's the context, why did Paul write the letter? It's certainly clear that he wrote the letter to deal with false teaching. If you start the letter at the beginning, sometimes it's good just to read a letter the whole way through. You see things you'd never see if you just start with the passage. In verse 3, he talks about combating false teaching. In chapter 6, at the end, he talks about false teaching. It's like it sandwiches the whole book. Here's why I'm starting. Oh, and don't forget. And then within it, on several occasions, he talks about false teachers. And it seems most likely, and I haven't got time to go into this in a lot of detail, but it seems most likely that this is the sort of false teaching that he's talking about. Now, let's just go through this verse, these verses really quickly and see how this makes sense of things. He starts in verse 9 and 10, I want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyle, gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good deeds. What's Paul saying there? Paul's saying it's not just a matter of how you act, but how you appear to others that matters. It's actually something we can forget, forget nowadays. It's all like, no, if I, as long as I act right, that's fine. Paul also says there are times where if we give the wrong impression, we should be avoiding that because that can bring dishonor to Christ. And Paul is saying to these women, listen, don't dress like those women because people will misunderstand you. And not only will it not do you good, but it doesn't do the name of Christ good either. And then he goes on, he says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. Indeed. So should men. Everyone should learn with a quiet spirit, as you could interpret that. In fact, Paul applies that to everyone just a few verses before. In chapter 2 and verse 2, when he talks about that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. Not just one gender, all of us. So he says, think about how you dress, think about how you learn. He then goes on, I don't permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now what's interesting about this part is the word authority. Paul doesn't use the word that would typically be used if he was wanting to say women shouldn't have authority generally in the church. There is a word or several words that were just general currency that he could have just used to make it clear. He takes a word that's used only this time in the New Testament and no other. So he's talking about a particular thing, not a general thing. And that, that word in other literature often has the overtone of dominance. So he's saying, I do not allow a woman to teach with dominance. Like these women who, philosophers, out the way, my turn. Or with the dominance of the female in the temple of Artemis rather than the quality. So he's saying, let the women, he said, let everybody learn. Do it with a quiet spirit, but not with this brash dominance. And so he goes on. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. 
gulp. The woman who was deceived. Well, what does he mean here? Well, in, what, in 2 Corinthians 10, he says that it was both Adam and Eve, men and women, who were deceived. So he's not saying women get deceived more than men. I mean, that's also historically ridiculous because it's largely been men who started heresies rather than women. So he can't be meaning that, and he doesn't say that elsewhere. He says we were both deceived. And then she became a sinner. Does, is he saying that sin came into the world through the woman? No, he's not, because in Romans 5, he talks about the fact that Adam is our federal head, and that through Adam, sin came into the world. So it seems that he's not creating new approaches to this. He's saying, no, 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 there's something particular, specific to this situation I'm talking about. He does it in verse 13 by taking them back to the story of Adam and Eve. Adam formed first, then Eve. Now, it may be that the cult of Artemis taught that women was born first, women was as primary, and then men. It may be that he's just sort of having a shot at that, that may be the case. But either way, he's taking us back to the Genesis story. And the very words that he uses in verse 14 remind us of Eve's admission that the serpent deceived me. So Paul is addressing this local situation and saying that some of the women, the daughters of Eve in Ephesus, have been deceived by false teachers. So he goes on with the solution Women will be saved through childbearing. Now, read by itself, you think, what? But when you understand the context, it makes sense. Because these women were saying, no, we, don't, we just do sex and sexual freedom. We do not do. Now, he's saying, no, 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 no. No, he said that to stay in the way of faith is to value that. And see its importance and live with holiness, love, and faith. In other words, these verses fit well in a particular context. They do not in any way undermine the clear impulse that both Jesus and Paul have towards equality and liberty of everyone in the church to serve him and to serve him together as brothers and sisters. Now, if the band could come back, please, as I come into land. Sorry, Sam. I thought that's what you were doing. Our conviction is that Jesus' person and presence is always to spread liberty, to say, come on, let's do this together. So to apply this in a practical way as I come into land, can I ask you, where are you meant to serve right now? See, we're a body. Many of us are familiar with the metaphor that Paul gives us. He says, you're a body. And he says, the head and the hands, the important, obvious bits, they matter. But actually, blood veins are essential. You never notice them. But if you've not got them, believe me, you're in trouble. So it's the invisible parts as well. So this church only gets to function when we all serve. Where's he asking you to serve? You may say, yeah, but my character, David, it's not great. But whatever your character's like, or, or maybe you say, look, how do I develop my gifting? My gifting's not developed. I don't know what I'm called to. No, well, get going. The way to... The way to find out is to start. It's like a, being in a boat without a sail, without any wind. You row, you get going. And as you get going, as you serve, you find out what you're good at. You develop your character. And you develop your sense of calling as well. 
Also, what is God asking us to do as we pioneer? There are countless pioneering opportunities. Joel and D. Wade getting ready to start a Sunday morning service in the east. They're starting to pray about an, uh, an afternoon service in the south. They were almost full there this morning when I was with them. There will be countless initiatives in terms of caring for those in need, in terms of cultural renewal. Here's what Herbert Cain, a great historian of the Christian mission, said. He said, if there is any one generalization that can be made about single women mission, missionaries and their ministries, it is perhaps their bent for difficult pioneer work. The more difficult and dangerous the work, the higher the ratio of women to men. I want to say to you women, go on. You go on, guys, and, uh, and, and break the way. Break the way open for us in different areas. The William Booth, pioneer in the East End of London agreed very much with this. He said this, many of my best men, he said, are women. So women, I want to charge you to serve God with all your heart to the very things that he has gifted and called you to do. But men, I've got something to say to you too. Gladys Aylward was a remarkable pioneer. She went to China. You know what she said? She said, God had a man for me, but he didn't have the guts to go to China. Now, as we pray, that never will Florence Nightingale's words be heard here. We must also pray that Gladys Aylward's words are not heard here either. Gentlemen, be courageous. Lead. Do not wait for others. Care, love, live holy lives. Be outstanding in your following of Jesus. And together, we get to glorify him. And together... We get to be a family. I think this is a great deal. Let's stand together, shall we? I'd like to pray, and I'd like the Holy Spirit to come. Well, I'd like, I'd like to pray that the Holy Spirit comes. <laughs> you don't talk to the Holy Spirit like that. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for the joy and privilege of loving and serving you. Come, Holy Spirit. I pray you'd come and affirm every woman and man in this room. I pray that you would affirm us in the very things that you've put in our hearts, the very things that you've called us to do. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would equip people with your energizing power. For those that have just got this sort of self-talk thing going on in their heads, which is a disqualifying sentence. I can see that for some of you. Like you just disqualify, disqualify, disqualify. Then you lay that at Jesus' feet now. And hear his affirmation. His, I love you. I'm for you. I have fruitfulness for you. In every way. May the Spirit of God rest upon us.